Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to Inside the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm your host, Sarah Baxter, Deputy Editor of the Sunday Times. Today, I'm delighted to have Tim Shipman, our political editor, with us. We kicked off 2019 with Theresa May's EU withdrawal agreement getting a big thumbs down in Parliament. She then barely survived a vote of no confidence in January and finally announced her resignation last May. Twelve months later, we're at the end of the year with a new Prime Minister following the momentous general election result and with Brexit back on the agenda. Tim, you've been described as the Boswell of Brexit. Now, as someone who has the inside track on all the goings-on at Westminster, what's it been like keeping up with all the -the behind-the-scenes drama? I think exhausting is the first word I would use. It's been a pretty relentless year, and at times we've had sort of... You've been turning up for work at the start of the week, not really knowing where you were going to be by the end of it on some occasions, whether there would still be a government, whether the Prime Minister was likely to change. Almost anything was possible at various points this year, and I think uh, at the end of it, people look at a a party with a a decent-sized majority, and they're looking ahead to next year and thinking, well, at least we might get a holiday. Yes, well, you never did, did you, really? (laughs) (laughs) So when Theresa May announced her resignation in May, were you surprised or did you see it coming? Supposedly, she didn't even tell her aides beforehand. Well, I think the specific timing of it was kept very secret, but it was pretty obvious that the game was up um, by the time Theresa May resigned. She'd spent a year trying to push this Brexit deal through. She'd been fairly secretive about what it was that she wanted to achieve. She sprung it on her cabinet in the summer of 2018. And then she began a process of trying to get it past her own MPs other people's MPs, and gradually alienated every single group until the end, had one final throw of the dice where she brought in the Labour Party and tried to strike a cross-party deal. That ground on for seven weeks, but by the end of it, it was pretty clear that there was no way that she was going to get that deal through. And once that became obvious, it also became obvious that uh, something new needed to happen. She ended up pretty isolated and friendless. Uh, You've interviewed her a few times. Uh, What was she like in person? I think I'm coming out in a cold sweat thinking about it, to be honest. It was always pretty hard work with Theresa May. And one of the problems was that she never really quite saw the point of doing interviews. One of the problems with her Brexit deal was you know, that it was definitely complicated and it needed quite a lot of selling. And neither she or her team were ever terribly good at, at doing that. She 
you know, she didn't embrace being asked questions. She didn't tend to turn up with something very exciting and meaningful to say. A good political interview is a little bit of a conspiracy between the journalist and the politician. The politician wants to get their message out. The journalist wants to get a good story. But with Theresa May, it always felt a little bit like unarmed combat, where if she ever gave an inch, she would feel like she had been defeated. The only really successful interview I did with her was when she took over as Prime Minister, uh, and we did a chat with her uh, before her first big party conference. And on that occasion, most of the answers had been kind of brokered with her team. I'd said, I might be interested in this, this and this. And they went off to talk to her to try and give her some interesting answers for once. But there was this astonishing episode that happened behind the scenes, which sums up Theresa May quite well, I think. They knew that I wanted to ask about the fact that her parents had died before they saw her become very successful in politics. And they went off to sort of prep her for this. And she, she didn't have an answer she didn't know what she was going to say. And one of her team, who had lost a father quite young, sort of said, well, you know, I feel very proud of doing the job that I do. And I'm very sad that, you know, my dad was not around to see me, you know, be successful like this. And they were astonished when May was sitting in the room with me that she parroted the answer virtually word for word, almost effectively stealing someone else's emotional memory. And that sums up, you know, a diligent public servant, but one who found both emoting and communicating very difficult. Now, she really wasn't that relatable as you found, but I remember you had um, a great scoop on the eve of the 2018 Tory conference when you interviewed both Theresa May and Boris Johnson, and in a sense, I feel that foreshadowed her eclipse by Boris Johnson as the coming man. So what's he like to interview? Boris Johnson is very different kettle of fish. It's sort of performance art with Boris. Boris is he sort of he's a bit like a jazz musician with words. He sort of things spew out of his mouth, and if he likes the sound of some of them, he kind of riffs back on them until he's found the phrase that delights him and feels good in his mouth, and then he plays with it. and And it's it's sort of an interesting thing to watch and you can almost see him kind of working out how to sell himself and sell an idea as he goes through the process of doing the interview it's all a big act to a degree but it's one that Boris has been doing for you know 30 or 40 years and it's become such a part of him that interviewing him is almost it's all people say where's the real Boris well that is the real Boris it's it's a very private slightly shy man who comes out and behaves like a showman. And you really feel that in his presence, that he's putting on an act. And he, he wants you to go away liking him. He wants you to go away with the story. Um, I've never met a politician who quite so regularly says to his aides and the journalists at the end, you know, did you get what you need? Have you got what you want? You know, has that worked? He wants it to work for you and for him. And the contrast with May couldn't be starker, really. And what happens when a politician blurts out something that they didn't really mean to say? Well, I think the rules of the interview are that um, that's bad luck. Um, I interviewed Boris quite recently when he had his tail up towards the end of the general election campaign and there was lots of serious stuff about immigration and he was hitting all his you know end of campaign closing messages about Brexit and it was all word perfect until near the end where I asked him a question that uh, Julie Etchingham had asked Jeremy Corbyn about you know what's the most romantic thing he'd ever done and Boris had been dodging Julie Etchingham so I thought it'd be amusing to ask the same question and see what his reaction was and his reaction was to start going on about the London Olympics and how when Brexit happens it You'd be hard pushed for everybody not to jump into bed with each other and to create a massive baby boom. This was obviously an amusing story and we put it, you know, small but on the front page of the newspaper. And, you know, Boris was not slow that evening to uh, register his irritation. But, you know, he did say what he said. I quoted him accurately. And that was a point I think his own aides made to him as well. But, you know... He knew he sort of mucked up a bit by bringing the subject of babies and baby booms into the public domain a week before a general election. But, you know, he said it, so we wrote it. Indeed you did. And uh, do, you, do you almost hear AIDS sort of 
sucking their teeth and pursing their lips as uh, somebody makes a uh, what they might consider to be a gaffe. There was one interview I did with Boris when he was Foreign Secretary in which he was competing with Michael Gove to be the, the biggest protector of endangered wildlife species around the world. And Gove had made some remarks about the beaver and how endangered it was. And Boris could not resist making a slightly off-colour reference to beavers in this interview. And I could literally see his main spin doctor collapsing in a heap in the corner. He, you know, his head fell into his lap. And there was a sort of, do we really need to lo- use that old chap? And I said, well, that's the, you know, that's the perfect payoff to the piece, I'm afraid. And of course, it didn't do Boris any harm. It only enhanced his sort of reputation of being slightly loose-lipped and having a bit of fun. But, you know, it was deliberately salacious. He couldn't quite help himself. But the people around him at that point were ready to sort of stove his head in, I think. And it's just as important for you as a political editor to have a conduit to all the big political beasts via their aides and advisers. Yeah, I mean, at the, the last couple of years, I think it's been fair to say that people in my position have probably talked more often more directly to members of the cabinet than at any time in the previous sort of 20 years. This has been a very leaky government on the whole. But most of your contacts are with the special advisors, the spin doctors, and the people who kind of broker the interviews and deliver the messages behind the scenes. And, you know, this whole business is a, is about contacts. There are some journalists who stare at bits of paper or find things on the internet. People like me operate by getting to know people and hope that you're the person that they want to tell the interesting story to. And as a result of those relationships, if you've got something you can go to them and hopefully get a straight answer because they know that mucking you around is not going to work for them either. So it's this is just a human business. It's a it's a very it's all about who you know. You know that's where the work is put in. To be honest, and the real stark thing of the last sort of four or five years is the number of contacts we've lost. It's sort of massacre of the contacts the last three or four years. If you think of the Cameroons, you know, a lot of us have spent 10 years getting to know those people. They were all out of a job in a single afternoon. You look at the people around Theresa May. I'd known Nick, Timothy and Fiona Hill for a long time when they were at the home office with her. The Cameroon people drummed them out of government. They came in total glory and total power to run Downing Street 11 months later. They were dead and gone as well. And you know, the Theresa May people had three good years, or three difficult years, and now it's a it's a totally different group of people. The interesting thing is, in the Conservative Party, that some of those people are the people who expected to be running it three years ago, the people who ran the Vote Leave operation. The return of Dominic Cummings uh, to Downing Street, having won the, re- the referendum campaign, I think is a, a sort of neat bookend to a remarkable three years. People like him were expecting to be running the country back in 2016, and for various reasons it didn't happen. And now they're there, and they plan to make the most of it. With so much information coming at you at once, how do you fact-check quickly enough? How do you know who to trust? Well, it's about building those relationships. If people mislead you, you tend not to trust what they say. If mostly what they say has proved to be accurate over the years, you put your faith in them. There was a classic example of this about a year ago when the Sunday Times revealed that Theresa May was pulling her first Brexit vote. And I had two sources who I had built up a relationship of trust with who indicated to me that that vote was going to be pulled. The official line was that they would not say anything for another 48 hours and that they would certainly not confirm it and that I could expect to see lots of people going out saying this would not happen in the intervening two days. But I trusted those people and a third person said, on balance, I think you probably should go with it. So we did. And it was probably the most nervous weekend of my career because everybody else was saying this was nonsense. Various members of the cabinet, including Michael Glove, took to the studios to say this was nonsense. And at lunchtime on the Monday, it was finally confirmed. But that was 
not something I would have done on the basis of someone I'd known for 10 minutes. It was people I'd known for several years who had been giving me a steady stream of reliable information. And you just have to make a judgment call. I remember thinking, that's great. Tim was more accurate than Michael Gove, who was actually in the cabinet. So uh, that was a vindication. Point I've made regularly to Michael Gove. (laughs) Now, there was another time, wasn't there, where you got a very important leak from inside the Labour Party. It was the eve of their conference. And this was coming from a member of the inner circle. Yeah. So Andrew Fisher was Jeremy Corbyn's head of policy. Um, a real true believer in the gang, but he'd written this memo, which was entirely designed to blow up the careers of two of Corbyn's other closest aides, Seamus Milne and Carrie Murphy. And we'd all known that there were a lot of tensions in this team, but to the rest of the world, they had been quite good at putting on a, a united front. And this was the first time something had properly leaked from inside. And I got this from someone who I hadn't known for very long, But the quality of the material was such that I had to verify that it was accurate, which I was able to do quite quickly. And then I had to work out what are they trying to achieve with this and make sure that we weren't being played. But when I was confident we weren't, we dropped it sort of on the weekend of the Labour conference. And even lots of left-wing journalists were sort of like, how did he get that? Um, So that was quite satisfying. And Fisher was furious. The thing that's amusing is that he assumed that Seamus Milne had leaked it to me in order to force him out, which is an interesting theory. I think we'll be seeing a lot more fallout coming from the Labour Party in the coming year from inside that Corbyn Easter team. You had the scoop on Amber Rudd's resignation from the Cabinet, which led to some pretty tense moments to keep it exclusive. How do you keep the lid on a story like that? With great difficulty. That was a very nerve-wracking weekend as well. I'd known for three or four days that Rudd was thinking about resigning. I think they decided on the Thursday morning that she was going to do it. She was very keen to resign in her own way to get her side of the story across first rather than have the Downing Street sort of counter-briefing be the the top of the news. So we had to do it in great secrecy. I had to sneak off to to meet her somewhere, record a video, do an interview and then we had a very nerve-wracking Saturday as word got around that it was possible that someone was going to resign. Rudd herself was getting calls from people saying, well, I'm not resigning, so it must be you. What's happening? And lots of our rivals were trying to nail down what was going on as well. And we sort of agreed on the timings. But then keeping a lid on a story like that is very difficult. Rudd obviously had to start telling some of her closest aides, members of her family, some one of whom is relatively garrulous. And word began to get out. And eventually, when she was on the phone to Boris Johnson, one of Johnson's aides heard sort of the other half of the phone call and contacted one of our rivals. And at that point, we pressed send on the, the tweets announcing it. Now, it's fair to say, I think, that uh, a lot of journalists rather liked Amber Rudd, who is no longer an MP. Is it important to like politicians or is it better to keep your distance? Well, I broadly like politicians. They're quite good fun. They're a bit like journalists. They're sort of egomaniacs who are somehow along the way trying to do some public good. Uh, there's quite a lot uh, that we all have in common. Most of them have a good sense of humour. Most of them are understand the ways of the world. Some of them are pretty unpalatable. I don't think it's important to like them. I think it's often important to respect them if you're doing business with them on a, on a daily basis. I think there was a degree of, while the leaking was at its worst during the sort of latter months of Theresa May, I think even some journalists were beginning to think uh, these politicians aren't behaving terribly well. But it ill behoves journalists to complain about people leaking from Cabinet. So we mostly kept a lid on our doubts. You know, Amber Rudd is someone who, yeah, people on both sides of the house broadly like, but that didn't really play any factor in, in the stories we did with her. You know, she wanted to do something newsworthy and we were very keen to do it with her. But, you know, that was, again, she came to us because she trusted the newspaper, she trusted me, and they wanted the impact of putting something on the front page of the Sunday Times and landing it cleanly. And that, again, is a 
about you know the relationships I'd built with her and with her special advisor over the previous you know few years. So now Boris Johnson has a really strong majority. What was it like on the night of the election? Well, the day was quite strange because, I mean, the thing I would emphasise in all of this is just going back to the human factor here. It's not just Boris Johnson. Behind Boris Johnson are a whole bunch of very clever aides and a whole bunch of party workers, all of whom had flogged their guts out for five or six weeks. Their entire lives and futures depend on the number that pops up in that exit poll at 10pm. And two years ago, they thought they were okay, and those that were around then remember that as the most deflating experience of their lives. Throughout the Thursday, nerves had been growing in the Tory party. The pound was beginning to sink, apparently off the back of some private polling that made people think that they were not going to get the majority they hoped for. A few old sages were holding their nerve, and when they finally got it over the line, the sense of utter release and jubilation is unlike anything I've seen in a very long time. Someone showed me a video of the moment in central office when the exit poll was announced from the back of the room. It's a fascinating video. And you've got this moment of utter stillness. It's like the sort of a bomb has just gone off and the, it sucked the air out of the room. And then virtually everybody jumps in the air and starts screaming. The two people who I noticed didn't, one was Isaac Levido, who was the head of the campaign, who just embraced his girlfriend and looked utterly relieved. And the other was a chap called Alan Mabbott, who has done about eight or nine general election campaigns. And he sat down throughout this entire process, didn't flinch once. And that's uh, a guy who's won and lost a lot of elections, holding his nerve. But most, for most people, it was utter jubilation. And then similarly, you know, your friends and contacts in Labour ranks, a lot of them didn't necessarily think Jeremy Corbyn was that good. Some of them didn't actually necessarily approve of Jeremy Corbyn particularly. But when you've worked really hard on something and it's gone wrong in that way, and they look at the road back being a very long one, it's utterly deflating and soul-destroying. And another close friend of mine is a, uh, someone who had worked his way up to work alongside Joe Swinson, um, had waited a long time to get the big job in politics. That job lasted two or three months. Yes, that she was the unexpected loser on the night, wasn't she? Yeah, that was high drama. She lost by 149 votes, arguably made some mistakes in the campaign. But, you know, she'd lost her seat previously. She'd fought her way back. She'd become leader. And just again, you know, it's staggering how many leaders we have lost over the last, you know, even four or five years. So who do you think is going to be in the running for the next Labour Party leader? Any tips and predictions? Well, the simple answer to that question is whoever is backed by a combination of the Unite Union and the Momentum uh, campaign group. There seems to be a huge appetite to have a woman leader. I think a lot of people in the Labour Party are getting sick of being told by Conservative MPs that they're too nil up on that front. So you're looking at Probably Rebecca Long-Bailey is the front-runner because he enjoys the support of the Corbynistas who still control the party apparatus and she has, you know, a lot of union support. There's Angela Rayner, who is actually Rebecca Long-Bailey's flatmate. She seems keen not to run against her, but alongside her. Lisa Nandy, who is quite good at playing at the card of how do we win back these Leave voters who voted Conservative this time. I mean, arguably the most polished is, is Keir Starmer. The most ready is probably Keir Starmer. But here's a guy who led the sort of push to make Labour a very remainy party. And the perception at the moment is that that's what cost them the election. I think if you look at the figures, it would seem that Labour hemorrhaged more votes uh, to remain parties than it did to the Tories uh, on leave. But Starmer has that against him and the fact that he's a man and the appetite seems to be to have a woman. It could be hard fought. There'll be half a dozen decent candidates. But I think the challenge for Labour is whether or not they really have a soul-searching moment and reconsider what they're doing or whether they try and paper over the cracks and move on. And it will be very difficult for the person who I think the Tories 
fear the most, who is Jess Phillips, who is a sort of rambunctious, fun, uh, but basically a Blairite. Boris Johnson would probably fear her most at the dispatch box. I think the Tory party would fear her most electorally. But it's far from clear how she charts a path through to actually win the leadership. And this is a problem Labour and the Tories have had in the past, that the, log- the internal logic is not necessarily the electoral logic. Could be pretty entertaining, though, to see Boris Johnson square up against Jess Phillips. Well, I think see. she's someone who would puncture his ego. She'd take the Mickey out of him, and that's quite effective in politics. It's not just about righteous pounding of the dispatch box about the outrageous iniquities of the government. It's about making the other fellow look a bit silly, and I think she'd probably do that, that better than the rest of them. As we wrap up, what about the Tories? What are your predictions for them in 2020? Well, Two things, one of which is that Boris Johnson, having won all these Leave voters in the North, now has to try and keep them. And you'll see there's been a conscious effort to ape Tony Blair. He talked about a new dawn rising on the morning of the election. He then immediately went to Sedgefield, Blair's seat, and talked about how the Tories are now the servants of the people, which is the phrase that that New Labour used as well. He is going to absolutely love-bomb these seats, chuck endless amounts of money at infrastructure, really hit the NHS hard with with more money. And, you know, one of Johnson's aides said to me, Recently, you know, we have to be in a position where Labour cannot run an NHS attack line against us at the next general election. I think that's pretty optimistic since that's been Labour's attack line at at every general election I've ever seen. But he needs to neutralise that and show that he means business. So that's the one thing. On the other hand, so that will appear quite centrist and emollient and uh, one nation-y, to use the Tory uh, preferred parlance. But then you'll have what could be quite a confrontational process unfolding on Brexit, where Boris Johnson is determined to do his deal by the end of the year. He's determined not to extend. Now, he has the majority that would allow him to do so if he ends up needing to. But the message is very clear. Just because we've got a huge majority, that does not mean we're going soft on Brexit. And they want to go and do, you know, a fairly, what will have to be a fairly bare bones trade deal. So that's going to unfold over the next year as well. And then in the medium term, there's a big question looking at how many seats the SNP won in Scotland as to how long London can defer a second Scottish independence referendum. Johnson's people say there's no way he will approve a legally binding referendum, which then raises the prospect of Nicola Sturgeon running a kind of wildcat referendum of her own, declaring UDI potentially. And if Johnson gets the deal we expect on Brexit, then in the slightly further medium term, a border poll in Northern Ireland does not seem unrealistic in the next decade. So there's going to be plenty for you to chew on. Yes, but with uh, slightly longer pauses between the action, I think. Thank you, Tim. This has been produced by Alexis Sogel and Sam Joyner, with additional research by James Stannard. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.